0: All right, everyone. Um, first, man, I, I want to thank you all for just kind of listening in to Let's Get Real. Um, today, man, I'm, I'm blessed just to give you guys a special guest. Um, you know, one of the biggest things we love to do is just provide value. Um, and I was listening to him. I got a chance to talk to him. And um, man, the story is amazing. I think it's going to be dropping nuggets all day long. Um, and hopefully this is going to bring you value and be able to learn from his story. So um, before I introduce him, man, just to give you a little background, um, his name is Travis Ritchie. Uh, he's an entrepreneur, advisor, motivational speaker. He's invested in over 25, that's right, 25 startup companies in the last 10 years. And uh, he spent the first half of his career in the finance world and uh, does hedge funds over millions of dollars in hedge funds. And there was a regulatory issue, which we'll talk about a little bit now in the state of Arizona, where he got charged with some transactions and he served two years in a, a Arizona Department of Corrections. So this some prison time. And he was able to take that and now the stuff that he's doing inside the prisons you know that he's doing. is just amazing. I got a chance to talk with him. Hopefully, we're going to be able to connect and, and share that stuff. So I'll stop talking, man. Introduce you guys to Travis, man. What's up, bud? How are you, brother? Grateful to be here. Grateful, grateful, grateful. Thanks for having me. Dude, I'm glad to have you, man. So let's just get right into it, man. Um, Kind of a little bit about, you know, i, I like to kind of talk about how you started. You know, um, a lot of our journeys kind of start from when we were young, our past, things that we've been through. It's kind of created who we are today and and the victim or the victor mentality, you've taken obviously the victor mentality in that. Um, So kind of tell me a little bit about you, man. Let's get right into it, bro.
1: Yeah, brother. Happy to happy to give everybody kind of a taste. So, you know, for me, like you said, it's victim or victor. I never really wanted to subscribe to the theory that, you know, you you hear all this stuff like, oh, everything works for me, not against me. And I believe that I, I really do. But I think sometimes, and especially the world that we live in, people think it's more like a motivational thought that it is like an, like an action word, you know, if you really want everything to serve you, you really have to work for it. And so you know when, when, when I was growing up, you know, we had a boatload of adversity, but it's, it's only adversity now because I'm able to look back on it. When I was growing up, it was just my childhood, you know, and I, I, I have every reason in the world to be on tomorrow's episode of Jerry Springer. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. You know, when you kind of run through the highlight reel of negativity, you know, like, you know, grew up in a drug addicted, you know, gang member, father, you know, abusive household, Um, you know, and, and, and for me, I just felt growing up, we had everything pretty good. You know, my mom was there for us every night, my mom made sure that all of our ends met, you know, that we were taken care of to the best of her ability. And, you know, my dad had some incredibly wild demons and habits and addictions that he just couldn't get his crap together. And so, you know, now that you look back and you hear all these people, they want to make some of that negativity fit their narrative. Mm. And that to me is where we go wrong and we become the victim in life, you know, and I get the opportunity all the time to sit down with people that are incarcerated and they'll tell me that, you know, they're the luckiest people they've ever met. And, you know, I'll meet lifers on the yard and they'll say, hey, I'm, I'm the luckiest cat on this yard. And so, you know, when when I go back, I was in Chicago a couple months ago and and had the opportunity to sit down with some some pretty interesting individuals from a from a gang perspective, which is not really my area of expertise and and, and trying to understand them. You know, what you often hear when you speak to those people is I either am going to be dead or I'm going to be incarcerated. And when you change that paradigm and you tell them, hey, look, there's plenty of people from this same neighborhood or this same block or this same color, creed, race, you know, but whatever it is, pick something yeah. that have made it, that have gotten out of here, that have a good family, that have a good job, that have a good life, that have a good mental perspective. But we don't really want to make that narrative fit for us. Why? Because sometimes it requires a boatload of work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And tell me, so, so going back to, you were talking about your dad being on the, on the other side, you know, cause I mean, for me, I grew up with two parents and you got everybody. There's a lot of people that listen to this and, and I'm in recovery. So a lot of people that are listening to this, they all have their stories, right? You know, some grew up with, with the excuse of like, well, I didn't have a dad that helped me. I didn't have this, that helped me. And I see them playing that card. You know, and, and I know for me, I had two family members that I don't think there's any parents in this world that try to keep their, their kid away from drugs and away from obviously going to prison. But, right. I, you know, I, I chose that path and I'm where I'm at now. But tell me a little bit about where, where you were. I mean, you talked about your dad, you said, was was an addict.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Heroin addict. Wow. Pops was a heroin addict. So it wasn't that way. You know, my entire childhood, it got that way, you know, around the fifth grade. And it just became super obvious that that his life took a left turn. And, and his addictions just became more and more obvious, you know, you like, this is back, you got to remember, this is, this is back in the eighties. So we're going back a long time. And, and so, you know, he would walk around with the old school fanny pack on, um, you know, and that thing would become like, you know, his, his, his modern day man purse where he couldn't let that go and you couldn't touch it. And so it was obvious that there was something going on. And so, you know, what I saw him go through, he was too prideful and and had too much of a stature like in society in his own mind to really get any help or ask for help or go through any type of recovery. So he didn't ever do that. It was always like self-inflicted harm where he would try to get off of the stuff and my mom would try to help him through it. And unsuccessfully, you know, it was just this vicious cycle over and over and over for years and years and years. And when you're living with an addict, life is either really, really terrible or really, really good. You know, there, there's really no opposites to that pendulum. It's either horrible or fantastic. Well, Our family was either at Disneyland or, you know, I was up late at night with me and my sisters, you know, laying in a trundle bed in the basement and pretending that we were asleep while he was at the doorway with a loaded 357 revolver.
0: My gosh. Yeah. And you were how old then?
1: Man, this was fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade.
0: And, and is this something you had to experience? I mean, so your whole life, your dad being an addict, your mom was not an addict?
1: No, mom is, mom is the complete opposite of what dad was. Church going, spiritual, optimistic, you know, no addictions, hard worker. She was everything that that a mom should and could be.
0: Yeah. Wow, man. So, so you end up, obviously, did you ever go through the addictions or anything like that? or?
1: Never, man. I tell you what, I knock on wood, count my many blessings. You know, I don't, I, I never, I never, ever, ever, even to this very day, you know, I, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't, I don't do any type of drugs, you know, not even recreational. And I didn't do them because of what I saw him go through. You know, the pain, literally one of the, the very last conversations that him and I had kind of face to face, you know, was all of his list of regrets. His list of you know mental addictions, physical addictions, emotional addictions, all of his list of regrets, and that to me was just a it was a testament that I had made the right choice and not going down that path. I'm not somebody that really likes to give up, um, you know, my sensibilities. I'm not a real big fan of you know, do I black out? Do I drive home? You know, what wasting a morning? So it never really appealed to me that particular aspect of it. I'm fairly introverted, ironically. So I'm not really like a let's go to the club and gamble type of a guy. So it it really actually fit my personality to realize the pain that the addiction had caused him and then to realize where I really wanted to be in life to mirror those two and, and to never touch that stuff. So I feel for the people because I've met plenty of them. And I think this is an area where I don't think I know. I know this is an area where the Department of Corrections really gets it wrong, where so many of the incarcerated individuals are there for a charge that isn't their root cause.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. You see it so many times Bobby and I'm using random names, by the way, folks, you know, Bobby, for example, is in there because he's a car thief and you know, he's got restrictions on his driver's license and he's got restitution payments to the city because he stole cars but Bobby is not a car enthusiast. Bobby's a drug addict. And so while he's incarcerated, he doesn't get the drug addiction treatment that he needs. And that really, the root cause of the problems in society, and especially in the Department of Corrections for the incarcerated individuals, never, ever, ever, ever get addressed.
0: Yeah, man, I saw it in my hand. I remember uh, being in prison and same thing. I'm in, I have theft charges, you know, and okay. I'm in an organic, so I go twice and all my charges are theft, burglaries, dealing in stolen properties. You know, it's, it's just stealing. It's just thief. And, um, they had a modality program. They call it modality and it's, it's, <laughs> yep. and I only signed up for it because they said, if you complete this program, you can go to this work camp and, and be able to work outside. So I was, it was like an entry to get to where I wanted to go. And, um, and there I end up meeting somebody who, who he was in there for DUI and, and, kind of similar to me. He wasn't a bad guy. And that's the thing is like, I remember even my family, they're like, stop making friends with these people. You know, they're, they're so scared of, of the people in there. And, and I was, I still communicate with some of these guys in there because man, you meet some of the greatest people who just fell into circumstances of what you just said was drug addiction. You know, a buddy of mine is still in there, you know, seven years and he was a drug addict. And what are they doing for him right now? I mean, he's, he's cutting grass, you know, he's weed eating grass. He's not, there's nothing and he's afraid, you know, doesn't know what he's going to do to get out. Um, mm-hmm. they, they have this negative mindset in there. You're a convicted felon, you're never going to make it, um, which is a big reason why I want to share my story because I, I don't think that's the narrative. I think it's a narrative people tend to believe. And, and that's something you're kind of doing now, right? That's what convicted mindset a little bit.
1: Yeah, a thousand percent. Convicted mindset is exactly what you talked about. I had um, where this kind of idea was born. I had a meeting with a state, um, let's see, I'm going to do this as politically correct as possible. I had a meeting with a state parole and probation department, and and, and they said, hey, we, we've gotten information from another state that you have this program for individuals you know, behind the walls. What do you have for them on this side of the fence? And I said, well, it's kind of ironic that you're talking to me because you're the you're supposed to be the state agency that has all of the resources for these individuals that got released and so i said well tell me about the current third party that is that is is operating this this release program where is your success rate where is your pain points and so we kind of went through all of the different things that that they and that i saw as a, as a weakness and a strength and an opportunity etc and so at the end of it, I said, let me pilot this program. Let me take some of your guys that are on a limited supervision caseload and let me walk them through some of the steps that I believe you guys don't have the ability to do. And very simply, is the first one was, How do I fix my credit? There, there there's so many good people that are involved in the Department of Corrections, both you know, inside and then outside, on you know, with PMP, But I have never met any of them that are going to sit down with you and say, hey, look, in 90 days, you're going to need a vehicle and you don't know what your credit score is and you don't know what interest rate you can apply for. And because of that, you're going to have an $800 payment on some old beat up car. And it's probably going to force you back into the cycle of doing things that you shouldn't be doing with people you shouldn't be associating with. And you're going to reoffend. So let's let's get ahead of this problem. Let's get your credit score figured out day one. All right. Day two, let's talk about your needs and necessities. We're going to need food. All right. Let's make sure that your transitional house is hooked up with a nearby food bank so that you don't have to worry about 50, 75, $85 a week that you're going to spend on food. Because the moment you decide that you have other needs, you're going to start to move your your attention elsewhere. And we all know that I'm talking about drugs and any other addiction that's out there. And so I wanted to create this program that really started to insulate these guys, take away some of the stuff that is readily available. Every city in the country, every state, every municipality has a food bank, and most of those food banks are brimming with food. What I mean by that is they'll give away food almost when it's, when it's expiring. We're in an era right now where everybody's living on the fat of the lamb. Everybody's making money. Everybody's got government money, right? It, it's The food banks aren't In need at the moment, and I say that very gently because I I know that there's people listening to this who are in need, but i'm talking in generalities from the 10 years i've been doing this. The food banks aren't being overrun with people who need their orders filled, so if I can get a guy or a gal food delivered to their house for free. If I can get a guy or a gal their credit score situated from day one, now I can put them in a situation where they've got food they've got shelter and because of their credit score they're going to be put in a situation where they have transportation so. Those are some of the programs that we walk through step-by-step at Convicted Mindset. And then we take it a step further. How do I take my paycheck that I'm going to get? How do I budget it? What do I budget it for? Do I always want to live this way? Do I always want to work a nine-to-five? Or do I want to do something differently? Most guys that I've talked to, much like yourself and myself, want to be a solopreneur or an entrepreneur or have an idea that they want to explore. And they don't know where to start. You go on Google and after you've Googled, how do I start a business? You've come up with 12 pages of information and it feels like you're drinking from a fire hose.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. And nobody wants to walk you through without this gigantic dollar attached to it. Nobody wants to walk you through. How do I set up a business? How do I incorporate legally? How do I get my tax ID number? How do I set up a bank account? And how do I do all of that in about three days for about 150 bucks? Those are the steps that convicted mindset walks these guys through to really change the trajectory of their life. And then once you get success, like you, you need to have these habits on a daily basis. Who are you hanging out with? Who are you talking to? Most importantly, how are you hanging out with yourself and talking to yourself? Because the person that's going to kill every dream on the planet for you stares at you every morning while you brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. The limiting beliefs that we have in this country all stem from the mindset. If you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're definitely right. We've all heard that phrase a million times. But like you had mentioned earlier, we have this ex-con, felon, check the box mentality. Like all of the cards in the deck are stacked against me. And I wanna shout it from the rooftops with guys like you that it's just not true and it doesn't fit the narrative. You are the only limitation that you believe yourself to be. And if you say to yourself that I am a felon and that I can't make it and that I'm not, it's not going to be easy, then all of that's going to be true. But if you say to yourself that you can get out, that you can reform, that you can change, and that you can actually change the world, then that's also going to be true. And that's the message that I want to bring to the, not only the guys that are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated, but to the world. Because we live in a time right now where the world's a mess and nobody's coming to save you. Nobody is coming to fix your problems. Nobody is coming to give you a hand up. What you need to do is you need to figure out how do I take what I have? How do I take my values, my desires, my gut feelings, and how do I help myself out? How do I make sure that my posterity has changed forever because of the strengths that are inside of me? And so we teach the guys to tap into that. What are your habits and your desires? And we make sure that those align with your passion and your purpose. And once those are aligned, the profitability usually follows.
0: Man, it's crazy because this stuff right here that you're saying, it's its like, it's funny because even in recovery, right? They have the 12 steps in recovery. And I always say like, man, this is not just for people in recovery. And the stuff I'm yeah. hearing you say is like, man, this is people dealing with this stuff every day. You yes. know, I'm not going to make it because I don't have money or I don't have the family to back me up. You know, the excuses that we give ourselves of why we can't get what we want to get. Um, yeah. Now, I want to I kind of get into, um, like, what made you want to get down this path, but some people are listening, and I know your story, so I don't want to be ignorant to the fact that some people may not. Yeah. How did you get here? I mean, you, you had, like you said, you had, you had your dad who was, who was in addiction, a mom who, who was supporting the addicted dad, but you went on to follow the financial world and lead into prison. And some people are like, how the heck did you get there? So kind of give them a little background on how you got to that point, and then we'll touch on what, what made you want to create this change.
1: Man, I'd love to know how I got there. <laughs> Dude, I'll tell you what, so many people are probably laughing as well. So, you know, I got caught in the perfect storm, the perfect blender, as I like to call it. <clears throat> I, was, I was living the, the dream, uh, married to the girl of my dreams, still am to this day, and, and was in the world of finance. I, I was always a numbers type of a kid. Whenever I was driving with my mom or, you know, hanging out with my dad, my dad was a very entrepreneurial type of guy had started and had many successful businesses, even in spite of, you know, his inadequacies and his weaknesses. And my mom was always very pro idea, you know, and so I'd be driving with her and she was always coming up with ideas and solutions. And so my mom was the type that would say, oh, if you think this is a good idea, then how do we start that business? And whether it was a small lemonade stand or whether it was a portrait studio or whether it was sporting events where I would sell candy, my mom was always very pro entrepreneur and pushed me outside of my comfort zone. And so, you know, when I was when I was uh, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old and I'm dating myself here, everyone will remember this. I actually had a phone in my house that had a cord on it. Um, and so it was a landline and I would be called <laughs> right, right. I would be calling people, I would be hustling um, construction equipment over the phone before I went to school. And so I'm like, man, I just, I got this itch and numbers just came really naturally to me. And I fell in love with them. I fell in love with numbers and I like to say because numbers never lied to me. It was always black and white. And I could tell you if it was a good idea or a bad idea based on, you know, some simple data metrics. So um, there I was, you know, 25 years old, living the dream um, and, and traveling the country and crushing it in the finance world. I had millions of dollars under management And this particular fund, this was a 2006 fund, uh, 2006 to 2007. It was open for about eight months. And a portion of the money that we raised from from outside investors came from investors in the state of Arizona. In the state of Arizona, they have uh, registrations for, for capital that was being raised at the time that we needed to register with them instead of registering with the federal government. Simply put, to kind of boil this all down for people that are like, "What the heck just happened?" <laughs> if you have a, a, a U-Haul truck of marijuana today, you can be over in Oregon where it's legal, or you can be in Denver where it's legal. The federal government will send you to prison forever.
0: <laughs> like it,
1: it is still it is still illegal. It is a, it is still a federal crime. So securities laws are are much the same in in the you know 15 years since my since my crime securities laws have morphed and changed and now you see a lot of things online like the peer to peer lending space you know where people can raise capital from unknown individuals around the world and so there's been a lot of changes but at the time the state of Arizona had a a clause that said anything any transaction over the $99,000 threshold that was not registered within the state was a fraudulent transaction because the state of Arizona did not receive their tax dollars. And as a result, you needed to register and pay them their money. Well, we had raised over $3 million in that state, and I had about 60 different $99,000 transactions back and forth in that state. So they indicted me on what they call transactions of an unregistered securities dealer or salesman. Big, long, fancy word, right? And and so that, you know, we fought that case because I felt that this was a matter of miscommunication. I felt that it was just simply not really the the right way. I didn't understand what an indictment was. I didn't know how serious it was. I also didn't know how ignorant I was to to the legal system. I had one individual who happened to be an attorney tell me, you can indict a ham sandwich. And I didn't know what that meant, but I I went and I Googled it. And for anybody listening, you can Google it as well. But it basically says uh, the government can indict anybody for anything at any time for any reason. And all you're simply asking this this panel of individuals, this jury, if you will, is whether or not this individual did something. Not whether or not they're guilty, not whether or not they should be charged, but whether or not it happened. Yeah, it didn't
0: matter at this point for you. It didn't matter, no. Whether you knew or not, they didn't care. It was...
1: You know, didn't matter at all. And and didn't matter at all. And and the truth was, it, it, it was honest. Right. It, I did. I was I was dead to rights. It was my my bank account, my company bank account. You know, the wires were there for millions of dollars back and forth. And and it happened. And so I tell people this to this day, you know, I'll get calls all the time, you know, with guys that are in white collar situations to kind of give them my two cents or help them out or, you know, consult with their legal legal counsel. And unfortunately, as optimistic as I want to be, when you're looking at like a mail fraud or a wire fraud or a bank fraud case, if the wire went from point A to point B, you did it, yeah. right? And, and so I fought that case for six years. Um, this was a 2006 charge, and I did not get sentenced until January of 2012.
0: Mm. Yeah. Wow. So for six years, I mean, are you thinking like I mean that's a long time. I mean, I know like I've in like a, in a jail, which is different. But like when you're like looking at something that like I don't know what's going to happen. Is this yeah. something that you knew? Like you were like it's possible. What my what? What did you think was going to happen? I mean, six years of something dragging. I would almost like assume like this is just this is not. That's story. what I did. It to him.
1: You're right. No, you're thousand percent right. The day that I was sentenced, um, my wife and I pulled up to the courthouse. You know, parked at the metered parking, put our money put our quarters into the, into the, you know, the parking meter and, and went into the courtroom because I had done this for months and months and months and months. It, I became numb to the process yeah. at, at no point in time from 2000, at this point. <laughs> exactly. So at no point in time from 2006 to 2012, was I ever arrested ever? Yeah. Not one time. And so you start, you're like, man, there is nothing going on here. There's nothing happening. You become just so numb to this process Mentally, you're just exhausted because I'm, I'm, I'm running a company. I have a family life and I'm all over the newspapers. Physically, I'm exhausted because I'm running ragged, you know, still trying to, to, to keep up perceptions and, and make ends meet. And financially, you know, I've got checks every month that are going out to different attorneys and legal aids and counsels for, you know, 10 and 15 and $20,000 a month. And it's just bleeding you dry over the course of years and so there came a point where I said that whatever's coming after this can't be as worse as what I've endured now This cannot be that difficult and so my wife and I thought about it prayed about it and and we agreed to tell my attorney to put it before the judge the prosecutor was going to run this thing forever forever it was a thorn in his side he was very emotionally invested in it um, because of you know some prior dealings with my father in that same state And so there was a, there was an emotional attachment to this individual and myself, and I just couldn't shake it. We couldn't convince him otherwise. And every time we would move for a motion to, to, to remove the case or to move to a probationary outcome, uh, he would get, he would dig his heels in even deeper. And at one point he offered me 66 years, 66 years as a plea agreement.
0: So you said he had something with your father. Yeah. I never heard that side. Like, so like, I never even knew they could do, because shouldn't that be like some, where, hey, I dealt with his father, and now he's just looking at you like, oh, I've dealt with your father before, and you're his son, and and we're, you know, we're going all the way?
1: We tried for sure. We tried many times, you know. uh, My dad, you know, was a a, a notorious individual and had a, had a, a, a losing streak of crime, and was an incredibly violent human, and so he would you know, uh, he had a lot of, of red tape that surrounded him and the government, you know, both at the state level and the federal level. Um, and, you know, my dad passed away last year, but, you know, my dad was, you know, convicted of manslaughter, attempted murder, you know, triple murder, vehicular manslaughter. There was, you know, my dad was on parole. My dad was on probation. You know, over the course of my lifetime, my dad had a litany of charges surrounding him. And then he was involved with an organization, the Hells Angels. Um, who also were, a, you know, a, a very eclectic group. And so it didn't bode well for me to be, you know, his son. And this particular individual just really held that precedent and didn't want to let that bone go. And so every time we would go say, hey, you know, my attorney would go to him behind closed doors and say, hey, this, let's move on. We've paid a fine of 3 million bucks. You know, this is, this is five, six years old. Let's move on for this. And he would come back with a plea agreement 30 years, 40 years and he would continue to dig in deeper. So we put it before the judge, and uh, I walked out of the courtroom around Thanksgiving time of 2011, and my attorney looked at me and said, hey, you're going to go spend the holidays with your family. Just enjoy it. Looking back, I, I didn't really know what that meant, and now I did. We walked into that courtroom in January of 2012, and that judge pulled no punches. He looked at me dead in the face and read my charges and actually used All of my background and all of my good deeds and all of my education against me and said, you know what you did, you should have known about you are an educated individual i've seen you speak i've heard you speak. I know what type of results, you were able to get financially, and so you knew or should have known. That you needed to be registered and since you didn't register with us i'm going to make an example out of you those were his exact words in the courtroom public record. And at that point, he remanded me to two years Department of Corrections. And that was the first time in my life where I experienced those silver handcuffs.
0: Man, dude, you got to take me through that because I can only imagine. I mean, like, I know for me, you know, and I was in addiction. It was like when I was in the back of a police car and I was in handcuffs, it was like, okay, I was waiting for this moment. You know what I mean? And then reality hit. And then I'm like it's almost like you were welcoming the moment, you know, just because of the the life that I was in and stuff. But yeah, on on your side of like, being on the other side of almost like, whoa, this is a change. Um, And and you served you end up serving two years.
1: So Arizona had an 85% rule. So that took my two years down. And then I got 90 days worth of good time um, to be able to parole out. So I ended up doing 15 months total.
0: And you were married, you said you had kids at the time as well.
1: So married. Yeah. Yeah. Married. And we had one little guy. Um, He was about eight months when I went in and um, or maybe even actually a little bit about, yeah, about six months old, plus or minus. Um, And so we had him at the time. And, you know, luckily for me, uh, he doesn't remember any of those experiences because he was so little. And luckily for my wife, Melissa, he was able to be there with her, you know, on a nightly basis when I was away. And so they would come down and they would visit every Saturday and Sunday. In this, you know, crappy little visitation trailer that we that we've all experienced in on a on a prison yard, and they'd come down and they'd visit every weekend, and we'd play and we'd talk, and he'd fall asleep on his on his nap schedule, and it was in those moments where I knew that this had to serve me, that this was happening for me. I I got rid of the pity party, the first ninety days, the woe is me, the crybaby attitude that we all seem to go through or have a tendency to experience here in mortality. And for me, I was like, you know, I told Melissa every time all of our experiences from this point forward, our letters, our phone calls, our visits, they're going to be wrapped in optimism, wrapped in it 1000%. So for me, I wanted to make sure that I was going to take every opportunity possible to bring that optimism to myself, my family in the yard. And that's where
0: quick, because like you just touched on something, I think that that's strong is like, and I love the fact that you're being, you're being as this podcast is called real, you know, you're just getting real about it as you went through a pity party, right? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people listening, even myself are like, man, you know, the judge is holding this stuff against you. You're not like somebody who was really trying to do something. And you're, you're thrown into a situation where I think so many people would have said, what was me right and you did if like i don't know whether you were saying what was me for those 90 days but you were in a pity party yeah what created that shift i mean cuz you i mean you whether it was 30 60 90 um, what made you go from like man you know what this is terrible why are they doing this to me i don't deserve this screw the system you know instead of trying to fix the system i'm coming after them when i get out so mm-hmm. you, know, you you had a mindset shift there you know can you kind of go over or, or a little what you think created that from the pity party to this is going to serve me because it sounds great right this is going to serve me optimism when mm-hmm. you watch the video or even I say it in a video it sounds great but yeah. for the people who are stuck how do they w- w- how did you make that shift
1: yeah the mindset shift has to happen because you know the the five words that I would wake up to every morning were you are going to die that was the mindset shift mindset shift for mm-hmm. me I knew that this life was a finite experience for me. And most guys like us get about 78 birthdays in this life. That's it. Plus or minus, that's your average. And so when you start to look at it in terms of birthdays, it gets really, really, really short. It gets really concise. And so I said, you know what? This incarcerated experience, I'm going to look around and I'm going to find every opportunity for me to do good. That's what I needed to do for me to make it through. I needed to find the individuals on the rec yard, on the workout yard that were doing good. And that was the first place I started. There was this gentleman named Lauren, the biggest dude on the yard, biggest white boy that I could work out with. And he was there every day with his Walkman on every day. And so I just started copying him, mirroring him, asked him if I could get involved with his workouts. And so he was the first place that I started. I thought, okay, if this guy's out here bettering himself, that's a place that I want to be. And then the moment that I could apply for a job, I went to a very, very, very low yard. And, and it was a work camp, basically. Every Most everybody got off the yard every day to go and do something in the community. Um, we worked at the fire department. We worked at the public library. We worked at the schools. You know, we worked at the parks and rec. There was all these different jobs that, you know, many people got to do. And fortunately, by happenstance, there was a guy in the yard named Doc. And he said, hey, I, you know, I'm. I'm the education tutor and I'm leaving. And, you know, I keep hearing your name kind of passed around that guys are asking you some questions. Do you just have like prison knowledge, or do you have like real world experience? And I said, no, here's, you know, here's kind of my background. And so they pulled my transcripts from, you know, school and college, and I was able to leave the yard to go to the Cochise college prison section. And I was able to be a tutor on that yard. Um, And so the, the prison in the, in In that city, had four different yards that would meet at this particular college. And it was just all of us inmates under this roof. And it started with me teaching a business 101 course. The guys who were there were hungry for information, they wanted to understand how to build a business and do it the right way. And to me, that's what I had done for the last many years. So I found my my purpose in there while I was incarcerated. And the moment that I had a mindset shift, it happened like this. One of the gentlemen who was a, kind of like a teacher's aide out, out at that, out at that uh, college, he came to me and he was going through his pitch deck. He was creating kind of a business plan and a pitch deck. And so I, I, I said, well, what do you want to do when you get out of here? And he was kind of like you referenced when we first started, he was stuck in the fact that he didn't want to focus on getting out because of all the things that were stacked against him. I can't get this. I can't get that. I'll never get an apartment. I'll never get it. Never, 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 never. And so he had this whiteboard. He actually had a little office because he was a teacher's assistant. He had this whiteboard. And I said, well, let's whiteboard this, man. Like, what, what is it that holds you back? And so as I uncovered, like, stone by stone, step by step, most of it came back to credit. I can't get a car. I can't get an apartment. I can't do this. And I thought, well, this is simple, man. This is just a credit score. This is a FICO score. And he said, what, <laughs> Fico. what are you talking about? So I'm like, what the FICO? <laughs> <And> so it <laughs> kind of became like my, my like one liner on the yard. And, and, and people were like, Hey man, don't, don't say that. Don't use that F word with me. You know, it's disrespectful. And so it kind of became a joke and it became this fun thing for me to talk about. And so people, man, we're gravitating left and right. What's FICO? What's FICO? How do I, how do I, how do I? And so I told my wife, that was the moment. That, like, that's where my story changed. If I can teach these guys how to get their credit score in prison, which is free, Equifax, Experian, TransUnion will send you your credit score twice a year for free. If I can get these guys their score and while incarcerated, teach them how to build a score, adapt their score to, you know, get rid of some derogatory information and learn about it, they can get out and walk down to the dealership and get a a nice car on lease for $1.99 a month. They can walk out and get an apartment because their credit score is not terrible. And I thought, man, that's a game changer. That is literally where my mindset shifted. And I started going to, to work. I wrote for a year, just course after course, course after course inside, you know, pen and paper, terribly written, you know, front and back. And it was just like, all right, guys, here's everything you need to do. Go to this website, go here, log in there, write this. And it was just like, Every single step that I could think of because I thought, you know what? I told my wife, when I leave this yard, I want this book to continue. I want everybody who lands at this college program to know, hey, I can get out with a better credit score. And that's where my mind shift changes. And so what I would tell you in that long-winded explanation is this. If anybody is out there that's stuck, you, you write down a list of the reasons that you're stuck and read them to yourself out loud that night. What you will find most of the time is that the reasons you're stuck are selfish reasons. I have never met anybody who can be in the service of another individual and still feel stuck or helpless. Whether you're incarcerated or whether you're blessed to be on this side of the fence, if you are in the service of other people, you cannot feel depressed, anxious, worried, sad, those feelings seem to go away. And oftentimes it's those feelings that make us feel stuck.
0: Man, you dropped so many nuggets there. I hope everybody was just like, even me, I'm like, holy smokes, man. Um, and it's crazy because as I'm, I'm hearing you talk and I'm thinking about when you made that mindset shift, what happened with the impact you were starting to make on other people? Um, and because and, I was on the opposite end before, like, I remember the first time myself going to prison, and I was the victim, right? I was like, and, and what I did was the opposite of what you did. I was like, I'm going to play basketball. I'm hanging out with these dudes. We're doing our time. When I get out of here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. And I'm gonna do that. And nothing was like, it was just like, this, this mess of going on in my mind. And then what happens is, is the people I'm hanging out with, started telling me, yeah, man, we can, if you go out there and you sell drugs like this and you do that. And then in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's what we're going to do because you're, you're putting, I mean, you have nothing but time and you have nothing but these guys that you're hanging out with. And I can relate so much because it's like, I was on the opposite and I end up going back, of course, you know, yeah. because I get out with that mindset. And when I went back, it took me a little while, but then I had a shift. And I remember for me, it was sitting in a room and this guy, had what they call a K letter. And, and I don't know if they do this in Arizona, but like a zero is your first time and an A is your second time. So he's got a K letter and he's like, and he called me a JIT, you know, that's what they call you. And because when you're young, he said, hey, JIT, you're going to be just like me.
1: Yeah. And
0: that was my mindset shift. And then I started like what you did, man, hanging out with dudes that were reading books and, and growing. I was like, hey, w- what do you do for work? And he started telling me what he did. And I, and I remember thinking if I would have done this, the whole, and it was only four months I did that if I would have done this my whole time, the change, it would have happened. But you took that mindset shift and it was like the actions that you took were all about, hey, first off, how can I get around people? That's what I heard. Yep. And it was, how can I help people? You know, and, and man, it's funny in recovery, that's like the number one thing. It's like, man, if you're dealing with something, you're dealing with a problem, go help somebody who, who has 30 days of sobriety sit with that guy and help him go through what you're going through. And at the end of the day, you're like, dude, I have no problems, man. And and dude, I love, like, there's so much stuff you just said there, man, that, that I'm like just saying out loud because this stuff's just helping me. So it's got to be helping other people right now. Um, just bringing value to other people to get out of yourself. Um, and let's talk because we got a little bit more time. I probably talked to you for two hours about this stuff, but, but, but so, so you get in there, you start seeing these problems, you start seeing these ways you can help them. And I think all of us inside, when we're bringing value to people, I can speak for myself at least there's this feeling inside that gives us that, that worth, man, this is, this is what life's about, but you get out. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people would say, okay, it's great that you were in there when you get out. How come you weren't focused on, Hey man, let Travis Ritchie fix his life. You know, why, what made you want to go back in to do something to help guys that, that some people would say like, Hey, they're in there, they're stuck. You're out, bro. It's good that you helped them, but go, go do you and help people in community. Why are you going back into prisons right now?
1: Yeah, man. Such a good question, because I realized that the system—the system needed somebody to change the narrative that could actually speak to it. You know, most of the guys—and no disrespect to anybody who's doing it—but most of the guys that get involved in like prison ministry work um, are, are look the part, talk the part, act the part, and and they expect you and they expect you to do so. You know. I was able to get in front of departments of corrections and bureaus of prisons and really articulate with them the problems that they were having. So I was able to walk in the room and command attention because nobody thought that I was a former inmate. And so when I would sit down with these departments of corrections and bureaus of prisons, and I would say, let's talk about the rates that you're receiving. Let's look at those rates and let's figure out the problem as to why. And what I can tell you based on my experience is here's three or four or five reasons why you're experiencing these pain points. And I remember clearly one of my first meetings, I was, I was with a particular state and he looked at me, the director looked at me and said, man, you're the 1% of 1%. And I said, I feel grateful that you said that, but I'm also saddened because you're the individual who's supposed to be making these 1%. Wow. This is your job, mm. right? And so I thought, okay, this is where this is where I need to be. I want to give a voice to the underserved. I want to take the information that I have to the people who need it. And I had a great Rolodex. I have a great Rolodex. I have a ton of friends on the outside who can help me with this cause, who are willing to stand up for me. And if I take it and I treat it like a business, I felt that this would be an opportunity for me to make a difference. I was able to fill out RFPs, I was able to get grants, I was able to raise money, I was able to get gain awareness and local and national attention based on my message. And that's what this platform really needs. You know, you look at what's happening now in the prison reform space, whether it's John Legend or Kim Kardashian or your Kanye or you know, Drake, you 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 need a big platform in order to really make a shift in this type of thinking that's so archaic. In the Department of Corrections. And so I have thought, man, I can make that shift. I can speak their language. I can articulate the problem. I can solve the pain point. And then I can develop the curriculum that will help them get out of that particular rut. And that's where I've been focused is what curriculum do I bring inside that will change the trajectory of these guys' lives? Many, as you mentioned, you know, so many of the programs that are on the yards are just nonsense. They're show They've got some sort of financial attachment to uh, a nonprofit or to a state agency so they can check the box, so they can get some dollars. But nobody's really walking through the pain of a childhood that was laced in trauma that led you to abuse drugs. Nobody. A lot of organizations are doing that on the outside, but recidivism starts the day that you go in. A mindset shift, a change, that actual like intrinsic feeling inside of you that says, you know what, I need to succeed as badly as I want to breathe. If I can attach a purpose to that person with that same feeling, it's it's a wrap for me. It's game over, it's lights out. That person's gonna be unstoppable.
0: Yeah. And man, I can I can even just think about guys that I was in there with and 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 it's just it's crazy and I, I used to talk my wife will always ask me stories because she comes from background like she still finds it crazy that I went to prison you know because I'm totally a different person than I was then but you yeah. took all you had to do is take away the drugs you know right. all you had to do was for me to realize that and I was grateful that you know before I went in a lawyer told me to go to a treatment center to help my case you know and then I get on I go on probation so I was introduced to what a real drug problem is, the fellowship, and, and, and how to solve my problem, I still right. went back in, obviously. But when I got out, I had an idea. I was like, okay, this is what the issue was. But there were so many people that were in there that were like, no, I don't have a drug problem. And after I realized, I'm like, man, it, it's like they spent all their time and they don't really know what the issue is. And you nailed it, man. It's, it's the root. They don't understand that there was these root causes that happened. You know, yeah. we don't want to look at that stuff, you know, of course, ourselves. And how do we get it out of ourselves? Even me to this day, I have to have somebody point out things that they see in me because I won't see it myself, you know? So why, why would the, now the other question I want to have is how are they responsive to this? Cause there's a part of me that's like, man, like, I don't know there's, and this could be my own thinking is, do they want us in there? Do they, cause I have a passion just like you do, right? It's like, how do we help these guys that are in there that are stuck? when they get out to say hey bro look Travis Ritchie could make it Joseph could make it this guy could make it and let us show you how how are they responding to you when it comes to that
1: uh the incarcerated community responds very well I think that 60 percent of the incarcerated community feels that there's a better life for them out there um you know I say it often 20 percent of the incarcerated community just deserves to be there that's where they thrive that's where they live that's that's it's they've resigned themselves to that life. The other 20% are victims of circumstance. I, I actually feel bad for some of those folks. You know, if, if you fell asleep at the wheel because of sleeping medications or pain pills or, you know, you fall asleep at the wheel and you, and you hit somebody, those that guy knows that's an accident. He doesn't right. He doesn't need the rehabilitation to know that he was made a poor choice. But this middle of the road, 60%, I think those guys are, are willing and able and consciously want to be helped. And a lot of them just want to be handheld through the process, because like you said, you know, they go, I have all this stacked against me. Where do I really go? So where I start when I talk with these cats is I want to make sure that, that we understand ourselves first and foremost. The mindset that you have, you know, felon, for example, is nothing more than a, than a noun. Um, it's a person, it's a place, it's a thing. And so when, when I sit down with an individual, I want them to put an adjective in front of that noun. You know, when you're talking about like short hair, or bald hair, or brown hair, or white hair, or long hair, you know, it gives hair, the noun, like a real thought, a feeling, an emotion, and it gives it a purpose sometimes. So when I sit down with guys who go, oh, I'm a felon, I want to put a, an adjective in front of that. And so that's where accomplished came from. I wanted you to feel accomplished. I wanted you to feel important and special. And so now you change the narrative. And so, one of the ways, you know, I'll, I'll give everybody listen to this. One of the ways that we change the narrative with our program, one of our programs is an employment program. And this is good whether, whether you've you know, been incarcerated or not. So many people in today's world don't have the ability to sit across from a potential employer and have one on one dialogue with them, tell them where they feel their strengths or their weaknesses are, where there's an opportunity to, to coexist or to thrive. And so, we, we live in this society where we just kind of shrink down. We, we don't want to puff up. We don't want to puff our chest. We don't want to feel bigger. We don't want to feel awkward. We don't want to step outside the cubicle. And so we, we shrink. But the narrative that we teach the guys that are incarcerated is very simply this. Hey, Joseph, my name's Travis. And for the last 36 months, I've been incarcerated. What I've learned about myself during that 36 months is one, two, and three things. They list them off and they tell them. And those are the three reasons why I applied for your job. When I was reading your job posting, what I learned about myself and my skill set that I have reflect perfectly to this job listing in ways A, B, and C. That being said, Joseph, I don't want to waste 36 more minutes of my life or yours. So if we can't continue this conversation because of my background, then I'll go ahead and excuse myself. And you stop talking. You stop talking. Nine out of 10 employers who have the ability will ask you for more they'll tell you, hey, bring a friend. Hey, absolutely, I can teach you how to sell cars, but I can't teach honesty. I can't teach integrity. I can't teach self-confidence. And those are some of the tangible skills that even though we're wrapped up in an employment program, those are some of the skills that I love to bring you know, to the prison yards and then also to the C-suite of America. So much of what we do now, 50% of our time now is spent outside educating individuals and high school students all the way up to C-level executives, how do I go to my boss and talk to, some, talk to them about a pay raise? How do I go to my spouse when I have a conflict? How do I tell my spouse that I'm feeling less than based on a conversation that we had? How do I have dialogue with my children when I don't feel that I'm the expert in a certain subject? And so you start to have this whole human with the pain and the trauma and the limiting beliefs that came from maybe childhood or your peers or high school. All of this starts to rise to the surface. And to me, that's what a program really does. It brings the pain points to the surface and it allows you to address them so that you can create a better human, a better husband, a better father, a better role model, and a better community leader.
0: Man, dude. a lot of what you're saying is, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, is, is this like a self, you think it's a self-worth issue, not just in the individuals, you know? And, and that's the one thing as I'm listening, I'm thinking that's the word that comes to my mind is our self-worth. You know, if you walk into and and I know for me it was a tough thing being a felon getting out, thinking I can't get a job. And that was my thought was I can't get a job. And then I realized, like, okay, well, I'm gonna have to get a job, right? You know, there's gotta be. And then it turns my mindset into shifting. I would listen to like positive stuff all the time in my in my earbuds as I was walking to the bus and stuff. So that that little stuff kind of helped me to understand that, okay, and and there was still a little self-worth, was like when I walk in and they ask me. about that felony question, you know? And, yeah. and I don't know who it was or where I heard it. Somebody says, what you need to do is take that application and hand it to somebody and be able to talk to them and say, hey man, and it's very, I love what you just said. It was way more articulate than how I ended up saying it. it was like, hey, look, I just want to let you know I'm a convicted felon and this is what happened there. This is where I'm at today. I believe I'm great, but it, it was not as great, but it was just pointing it out. But it was me raising my self-worth, understanding that it's, it's a self-worth thing. So I know we got a few more minutes. I want to touch on what you would say to somebody right now who has a low self-worth. And I think we all struggle with that. I mean, I I would lie to you and tell you that if I don't ever struggle with self-worth to think, am I good enough to do this? What would you tell somebody that right now that says, I have a self-worth problem. I don't know if I'm good enough or I don't know if my self-worth is value enough to do the things that you're asking me to do.
1: Great question. I would tell you and I would tell everybody that you will never outperform your self-identity. You will never live up to any other expectations than the ones that you've placed upon yourself. And so what you need to start doing is you need to start stacking the wins, stacking the small wins every single day. I'm a guy that likes to write things down and I like to check them off. So it could be a note in my iPhone where I I create the little to-do list and then I, I tap it when it's done and it goes away. Could be a post-it note that's on your mirror of the first three things, and you could scratch them off as you do them. You stack small wins on a daily basis. I think we often underestimate what can be done in a year. We, we, we want to wait until New Year's to start a resolution. We want to wait until summertime to take a vacation. We want, right? It's it's always like we're putting off the inevitable. But if we start to stack the small wins on a daily basis, you're doing two things. Number one, subconsciously, you're telling yourself that your self-worth is getting better, you're winning. And secondly, you're making sure that you're keeping the commitments to yourself. I think that's where a lot of us get tripped up and we say, oh, I'm not good at this, or I'm terrible, or I'm a horrible human, is because we don't keep our own self-commitments. If you told yourself that you're gonna go to the gym every day and you don't, you start to not believe yourself when you start to set new goals. And so take them down, chunk them down into bite-sized gulps. Don't try to swallow the elephant whole. But what I would do is I would reverse engineer where you desire to be and make it as specific as possible. For me, my goal is to spend as much time as possible with my children. So I'm the best father that I've ever known. That's my goal in life. And so if I can reverse engineer everything I do to get there, then I know I'm living up to my self-identity, regardless of what other people may think about me, regardless of whether or not people like me or don't like me. I know that my children have the best father on a daily and a nightly basis. I know that I've reverse engineered my time in order to give it to them and everything else falls in line for me. That's where my self-worth comes from. So a lot of us guys are hunters, we're gatherers, we're providers, You know, we we want to be in that state, but you have to make sure that you see yourself as such and you need to write it down. So I would reverse engineer where you wanna be and as specific as possible. People will tell me all the time, I want to be a good dad. Well, what is that? Does that mean it's Monday, Tuesdays, and Thursdays that you're taking them to the the, the sports practice? Does that mean that it's Saturday night, daddy-daughter dates? What is it exactly? Write it down, feel it, understand it, taste it. You have to be able to experience that emotion so that you start to stack those wins on a daily basis as you live up to the end result of who you want to become.
0: Man, dude. I'm thinking about some people who might say, I don't know what that is. And, and I think a lot of times our, yeah. we value our self-worth because we don't know, you know, like I'm a father and I, I know all the time, I'm like, dude, I don't know what the right answers are. I just know what's right for me. And yeah. it's tough nowadays, there's so many people out there, even like, you know, as an entrepreneur or whether it's it's in recovery or it's being a father so many people out there giving you these formulas yeah. telling you, this is how to be successful. You know, you work Saturdays, you work Sundays, you grind. You know, you got the Tim Grovers of the world who say they, they leave their daughter behind to go grind, not saying it's wrong, but it doesn't mean you have to follow that path. And I think it takes a little bit of self-awareness, but mm-hmm. I think if you do a little of the things that you just said to improve your self-worth, I think you'll be a little bit more self-aware because then you'll want to look at yourself. And I think that people struggle with, they don't want to look at themselves because they don't value themselves enough. So they're Correct. trying to be somebody else. So they're trying to look at what Travis Ritchie's saying, what Joseph's saying, what Ed Milette's saying what Gary Vee is saying and emulate that because they're afraid to emulate what they're really believing inside.
1: What you'll find is as you start to become more and more authentic and you start to tell your real story, you'll find the real tribe of people that, that follow you and support you and like you. You're never going to be an ice cream truck salesman where everybody's super happy to see you 24 seven. That's not the world that we live in. Unfortunately, there's people out there and on social media who I like to call keyboard warriors. You know, they're just text message tough guys and they're full of threats and and they're just really insecure, jealous little people. And that's where you need to place those folks. But as you get your narrative, as you start to tell your story, your tribe of people will follow along with you. The more authentic you are, the more you tell your pain and your insights and the stories that you've overcome from those pain and those traumas, people are going to go, oh, my goodness, you're talking to me. Oh, my gosh, I've experienced that oh my goodness, thank you for bringing awareness to this topic that nobody wants to talk about. And you'll be surprised. It's like when you purchase a new car, you think you're the only guy with like, you know, the blue Bronco. And all of a sudden there's like 10 of them driving down the freeway with you. You start to see things around you as you start to put it out there. So as you become authentic and develop your voice, you develop the narrative, you develop that tribe and it becomes this movement. And that's where people need to get to. So anybody out there who's doubting themselves I would say the only reason you're doubting yourself is because you haven't stared at yourself in the mirror and developed your self-worth and then articulated your story to yourself. Once you believe it, you're able to talk about it. But if you don't believe it, you're going to open up that camera and start to develop content. You're going to shut it down because you've got imposter syndrome.
0: Man, dude, I wish like everybody could just rewind exactly what you just said. Um, and I remember for me, that was very similar. You know, I come from a culture where we don't talk about our drug addiction. The first year when I opened up my fence company, I never put a video out there myself and said, I'm in recovery. I was an addict. I've been in prison because I was always afraid. Number one, family members and culture, my, my people in the culture will hear that. And they're like, oh my gosh. And, and it's like pointing out the big red dot on my forehead. And also the people yeah. in my business, you know, that if they want to get a fence for me, they're going to say, who's this guy? And man, I I remember it was the same exact feeling that I had when I was hiding my drug addiction. I'll never forget it. I was like, I feel like a fraud to myself. Like why, if I want to put a video out there, you know, I would convince myself, and this is just self-talk, like, why why do you want to put a video out there? You know, you don't need to, you know, everybody else is doing that. And I start talking to myself out of it. And I'll never forget just, I remember having this conversation with my wife. I said, and, you know, my dad was telling me because I, I made like one video and I think I like referenced addiction. And I remember my dad was like, stop talking about that stuff. You know, don't. So I stopped. And I remember me and my wife, we talked and I said, babe, I'm starting to feel like that same guy that when I was on drugs and I would show up to, to somebody's house that I would put on like a nice shirt and act like everything was OK. But this is not who I am, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, I, Gary V is like one of my spirit animals, I would say. And I remember him saying, just flip to a camera, record and never watch it. And till this day, that's what I do. I just, I go, I flip the camera, I speak what's on my heart and I post, you know? And I think that's the one thing people struggle with is, is it going to be good enough? How's my lighting? Do pe- are people going to care? Um, I actually just posted something yesterday and it talked about this topic that when I was in my addiction, people talked about me and talked bad about me. And they, they, they looked at me and, and, and said things. And now that I'm sober and I'm trying to help people, People are talking about me and that, and, and it's okay. It's not a reflection of me. And that's what I think people think it's a reflection of you. It's not, there's something going on in that person's life that they're having to look at your life and just, yes. you know what I mean?
1: You're th- man, you nailed that. And hopefully everybody just really dials in on that. You're, you're so right. It is when anybody projects the negativity or the meanness on you, it is a complete reflection of their own life. It is a complete reflection of their own insecurities and, and it, it is so specific to them, which is why it hit a nerve. And so it's just like you said, man, it, if we can get rid of what Sally Pants 347 says about us from his mother's basement, like you could really change the world. That's the message to get out there to everybody. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're absolutely right. If you're coming out, if you're listening to this and you're, you know, just as impacted in some capacity, you're talking to two guys, you're listening to two guys who have gone through the same trials and the adversities as you who still go through them on a daily basis. Joseph's still in recovery. I'm still trying to figure out how to be a father with four little ones and my beautiful wife. I don't have a role model. And so it's like, it's ironic where Joseph has the fatherhood role model. I don't Joseph, but I don't have the drug experience, but he does. And so you you really have to say to yourself, who am I going to align myself with that can take me where I want to go? That's what you need to figure out. But first and foremost, figure out what's inside of you, what burns you, what makes you really feel engaged. Guys will come to me all the time and they'll say, oh, hey, you know, I feel I feel burnt out. And and my response is simple. You're not a candle. You're not either on fire or not. The only reason that you're burnt out is because you're uninspired in what you're doing on a daily basis. When you're uninspired, we start to use fancy words, buzzwords like depression and anxiety. The good news is that depression is a series of habits. And if you've got yourself into a series of habits to feel a certain way, you can get yourself into a different set of habits to feel a different way. Those are the things that we need to focus on. As you become self-aware, stack the daily wins. As you become self-confident and put yourself out authentically to the world, your tribe's gonna follow you. You're gonna realize that your purpose and your profits, they mesh. And it's a beautiful thing when you get there.
0: Man, dude, that that's like a mic drop right there, bro. <laughs> so, look, dude, I mean, man, I'd love to keep talking to you. We're obviously gonna stay connected, but I think today was, man. I think if people are listening today, I, I know it helped me tremendously, and I think this is gonna bring so much value. I always call them nuggets. You know what I mean? This, there were so many nuggets here that that you were able to just to provide. Um, and and lastly, man, how can we how can we provide value to you, man? Where can people find you? Um, the convincing mindset, just kind of. I mean, obviously you're out there helping people and I know some people are listening to this like, man, I like this guy. Um, you know, what can, what can they do to help you or where can they find you?
1: Yeah. Appreciate that big time. You can find me at convictedmindset.com. We've got a big conference coming up June 4th in Boise, Idaho. Um, and we're always looking to, to, to really make those a, a statement. We're looking to help about a thousand justice impacted families uh children specifically and make sure that they've got the resources and tools that they need not only mentally but also physically you know in the form of shoes and bicycles and some school supplies so we put those conferences on uh semi-annually june and december and if there's anybody out there who's listening who has someone who's justice impacted or if you just feel stuck in your ways if you know that you're destined for greatness but can't get out of your own way if you know that you've got some limiting beliefs and can't figure out how to rewire them just drop me a line at convictedmindset.com and we'll get together.
0: Dude, That's awesome, man. We'll have all will have all your stuff in the, um, on the podcast link below. Um, but guys, that's it, man. Go out and crush your day. Travis, man, thanks for your time. Appreciate yeah. all the value you brought to everybody, man. And um, just for the listeners, man, thanks for letting us share. Likewise, brother. Have an awesome day. All right, you too, man.